Amen. All right, so something we've been talking about um, in here as we've been going through this series, House on Fire, we've been talking about marriages, family, parenting, relationships, things like that. If you look at, this week I did just a little bit of research, like kind of a word search. If you look at what is quote-unquote normal in our culture when it comes to marriages, families, parenting, relationships, things like that. These are typically the words that, that, that show up. At least for me, when I did some research this week, here are some of the things that I found. Here's some words that show up. It's words like fell apart, broke up, the, the relationship ended, we broke up. It was damaged, it was broken. Our marriages are fragile. I feel in relationships insecure or weak. A lot of times we feel distant, detached, distracted, in, in our relationships or in parenting, we feel angry, or maybe, and we're living in homes as students or kids, we feel unsafe, we don't feel like we can trust, or we feel like we've been betrayed, right? So that's just, that's kind of some of the stuff, as I did a word search this week, some of the words that, that came up, some of the most popular words, the most often used words when it came to things like marriages, family, parenting, dating, relationships, things like that. That's typically what we find. That's what's most commonly associated with those things. And there's data to back it up, right? Like still today, somewhere between 40 and 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. And there's not really much of a difference inside the church and outside the church. Those numbers are about the same. Somewhere between 40 to 50%, around half of marriages end in divorce. Nearly 25% of kids, this is new, this has actually gone up significantly. Nearly 25% of kids under the age of 18 in the United States live in a single parent home with no other active adult presence in their lives. A quarter of the kids under the age of 18 are, are growing up in single-parent homes where there's really not another adult that's present in their lives. Nearly 40% of Americans post-pandemic claim to feel isolation or extreme loneliness daily. This isn't like, well, you know, I went through a season. When I, that's the Christian word we use. I'm going through a season of loneliness, right? It's not that. It's, it's, it's daily. Daily, I feel lonely. Daily, daily, I feel isolated. I feel detached. Why? Because there's really not a, a lack of quality in my relationships or my friendships. You know, we live in an age now where technically you can have thousands of connections through social media. I have thousands of, of connections or followers or people that I'm, I'm connected to, and yet I feel more alone despite the fact that I'm more connected than I've ever been in my life. And of those 40% of Americans that claim to feel daily isolation or loneliness, 60% of that group are between the ages of 18 and 25. So we have a young generation in our country, in our church, in our homes, in our communities that, that experience daily feelings of extreme loneliness and isolation more than anybody else. And so if you want to sum it up, it can kind of be summed up like this, quote unquote, normal marriages end and don't last Normal families are fractured and incomplete. Normal relationships are shallow and transactional, which leads to loneliness and isolation. And the reason that we've been unpacking what the Bible has to say about things like marriage, parenting, families, and relationships is because what God wants and desires and makes possible for you and I is something far greater than what we have come to accept or know or understand as normal. And here's the thing, what God desires for us, this greater that God desires for us, has been that way since the beginning of time. When you look at some of the descriptors 
of marriage and parenting and families and relationships in the Bible, especially from God's perspective, when God is giving instructions on what these things are supposed to look like, here's what you find. Peace, safety, security, commitment, mutual sacrifice, mutual submission, trust, honor, protection, provision, and love. You see the difference? Like this is normal from God's perspective. God would say this is what, when it comes to marriage, parenting, families, relationships, this is normal. What the world would say is normal, God would look at and go, that's abnormal. That's not normal. But here's what we've learned, right? Here's what we've been saying for the last few weeks is, is that this, God's kind of definition, the way he would describe these normal marriages, families, parenting, and relationships, it doesn't happen on accident. Like you and I don't just accidentally stumble into a strong, healthy, vibrant, thriving marriage. It's like, well, man, how's your marriage so good? I don't know. It just is, right? Just stumbled into this kind of by accident. We don't stumble into accidentally, like stumble into families and relationships that function the way that God wants them to function. In order for that, the with God life in our marriages, families, and parenting to be a reality in our lives, the truth is, church, you and I have a crucial part to play in this. It requires us having an intentional strategy that is different than what or how our culture or our society would define and describe what's typical, normal, and average. And we started this series about six weeks ago. We quoted this verse in Joshua chapter 24, and this is Joshua speaking to the people of Israel, and he says this, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if it's evil in your eyes, if you look at it and go, you know what, I don't know that I really buy into what God has to say when it comes to my marriage, my family, my parenting, and the way I live my life. I, I, really, I don't know that I buy into this. I don't know that I want to subscribe to that. I don't know that I want to, for, to apply that to my life. If you think that, if that's your thought, Joshua said, Okay, just make a choice. Stop sitting on the fence. You know, stop showing up in, in places where, where you go, wow, I kind of believe in that. Joshua says, you got to make a choice. Choose this day, he says, whom you will serve. Whether it's the gods that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in who, whose land you dwell, make a choice. And then he says this, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And so we've been talking about, and we talk about this a lot at Adventure, this whole concept of you've got two deals on the table. You've got two routes you can go. You've got two things you can choose. You can choose to kind of build your life on and around the truth of Scripture and on the life of Jesus or not. Like you can build your life the way you want it. You can run it the way you want it. You, look, you can look at God and say, God, I think I got this. I can do this better than you get out of my life. You can do that. You've got two deals on the table. But this is what we've been, the question we've been asking or the same blank that we've been filling in as we've gone on throughout the series is this one. It's as for me and my house, we are. So you think about this. When it comes to husbands, right, men, fathers, when it comes to the way that you are training to be the provider and protector in your home, who are you serving? You know, ladies, when it comes to kind of regulating the environment in your home, being in charge of the environment and leading the environment in your home, who are you serving? And when it comes to our kids, kids, when it comes to, to honoring our parents, bringing honor to our families, who are you serving? It's like, it's like the Bob Dylan song. You got to choose somebody, right? You got to serve somebody, right? You got to serve somebody, right? If I can be just more accurate. But here's the thing, like we ultimately, you're making a choice, you might go, well, I, you know, I don't know that I've really made a choice yet. I don't think that I've, I, I'm actively. You are choosing. 
daily. You're making a choice. Some of us were actively making choices to either build our life on, in, and around God's truth or not. And some of us were making choices through inaction. We're just not doing anything. That's still a choice. When it comes to what goes in that blank, either by action or inaction, you are choosing something. As for you and your house, you will serve something. And maybe for you, you might say, well, as for me and my house, we kind of fit in that definition of, of normal, what the culture would call normal, which we know now means this. Our marriage is on life support. Our kids are out of control. Our family, all our family does is fight. There's nothing but tension and frustration and disappointment everywhere we turn. And this is exactly why Jesus came preaching the message that he preached when he said this, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's here. See, what Jesus says is possible now is for you and I. We have the opportunity to take him up on his offer to repent, which literally means to change direction. Like you can change the direction of your life. You can rethink, you can rework, you can reconsider. You can rethink the choice here today. And this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus gives you a from now on kind of opportunity. So you may have walked in here today and you go, I saw those, those kind of two descriptors of what God says is normal and what our society says is normal and I fit firmly in the society side and I need to make some changes. And Jesus says, okay, let's do it. You can. You can rethink the choice that you're making, who you're serving when it comes to what you build your life on. You can rework the choice when it comes to who or what you allow to define the roles and responsibilities in your family. Because of Jesus, you can reconsider what you've been choosing, who you've been choosing to serve when it comes to who you allow to set the values and priorities of your own life and the life of your family. And this is the good news today, church. Because of Jesus, it is not too late for us to change direction when it comes to how we raise our kids, how we exist and operate as a family, how we exist and operate as a single person, how we exist and operate as parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles. It doesn't matter. You can take Jesus up on this opportunity to turn away from what our world would say is normal, average, and typical and take Jesus up on his strategy for reworking the way that you run your life. And Jesus tells us how. Matthew 7, we've, we've used these verses almost every week. Jesus says this, everyone who then hears these words of mine and, a little more, a little more emphasis, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Now, here's the thing. I've preached on, we've used these verses the last six weeks as we've been preaching through the series, and I didn't see it, I didn't catch this until this week, which is why I love the Bible, because you can read the same verses a hundred times, and a hundred times they may apply to your life differently. I didn't catch this until this week. When Jesus starts talking about what comes and hits our houses, or what comes and hits our lives, what our lives encounter, if you'll notice this, he says, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, which means this. It's a given, it's an accepted fact, right, that rains and floods and wind will happen to us. Jesus doesn't say, you know, whoever does, hears these words and does them will be like somebody who builds their house on a rock and maybe, maybe rain will come, it might. Maybe there'll be a flood, you could encounter a flood at some point. It might get windy from time to time. No, Jesus says, it just, it's just a given fact that you will encounter storms in your life. 
And when you encounter storms and fires in your life, they will beat against your life. And it will be difficult. You'll experience that in your marriages, in your families, in your relationships. But Jesus goes on and says, when that happens, not if, but when that happens, your marriage, your life, your family, your life, whatever it is, your kids, it won't fall apart. Meaning this, it's not normal. Like that's abnormal. When you experience the storms and fires of life, when those things press on and beat on and push against your marriage and your family and your parenting and your relationships, it won't fall. That's not normal. Why? Because it's been founded on the rock. Right? That's the place we've been saying, like, the word rock in a Near Eastern culture, right, they they would have heard is it's been founded on top of a mountain. It's been built on top of a mountain, which is the place where God lives and meets with his people, right? That's kind of the way they understood mountaintops back in this day, that on top of a mountain is where God lives and meets with his people. So what Jesus says is essentially building your life on, on his truth is like building your life in the same place where God lives. It's the with God life. It's not storm free, it's not fire free, but it is storm and fireproof. And everybody, he says, that listens to these words and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. Same thing. It's a given fact. There's no if. The rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against the house and it fell. Which means it's typical, it's normal, and it's average. And great is the fall of it. And those of us that have experienced this know how great the loss of broken relationships, broken families, broken marriages. We know how great that loss is. I talked with someone recently who said when when it comes to the end of a marriage, it's like it, it affects you at almost an atomic level, like down to the atoms in your body. There's no part of you that's unaffected by that. And what we've been saying over the last five or six weeks is this, is that, that building your, your houses, when we say house, we're using the same kind of metaphor or parable that Jesus is. Your house is your life. It's your marriage. It's your families. It's your relationships. When you build your life on the rock of Jesus' truth, which is his ways and his words, what we're essentially doing is we are learning. We are learning to choose. We are growing in our ability to choose Jesus over everything else. Everything else that would want to convince us that it's good, it's right, it's true, and best. We look at all those million different things that want to tell us, here's how you run your life, and here's how you run your marriage, and here's how you run your family, and here's how you become a parent. We look at that and go, that's all great, but I choose Jesus. And what he says is good, true, right, and best. And the way we do that is we actively apply his truth to our lives with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And like we talked last week, we teach our, t- our children diligently to do the same. Now, We've pressed further and further and further into to, to Jesus' kind of parable or metaphor of our lives, our marriages, our families, our relationships as houses. And what we've done is we, we've, done, we've, gone, we've gone room to room, right? So we started with the, the, the foundation, the front door, the thermostat, the kids' room, those kinds of things. Today, we're talking about the bedroom, right? Surprise! And if you're going like, what is that? We're talking about sex, right? So if you're visiting Adventure for the first time, you'd be like... This is going to be awkward or weird, or do they they talk about this kind of stuff all the time? Yes, we talk about things that nobody else wants to talk about, okay? So this is your last warning. If you have K through 5 age kids, this is your chance to check them into kids ministry, all right? Everybody good? We ready? 
Somebody asked me this morning, I was like, do you get nervous when it comes to talking about this? And I'm like, no, I was a youth pastor for almost 20 years. I've had the sex talk with, with youth groups and things like that. I will say, this is the first time I've preached a sermon or a sermon like this with my son in the room. Um, so that's different. He's over there trying not to make eye contact and halfway like throwing up in his mouth, right? So here we go. All right. So the, the vast majority, if you read the Bible, the vast majority of the, of the New Testament, kind of the second part of the Bible is, is made up primarily of direct accounts of Jesus' life, direct accounts of Jesus' teaching, and then kind of letters to various churches. And so you have these gospels that, that kind of tell Jesus' story that are his biography, and then you've got these letters to churches and pastors that were written by th this guy named Paul. Books about Jesus and letters written by someone named Paul who was a church planter or missionary, kind of entrepreneur, business guy back in the first century, those things take up the majority of the, Old, of the New Testament. So direct accounts of Jesus' life and letters written by a man named Paul are the majority of the New Testament. And so whenever you read, whenever Jesus or Paul get asked questions about things like marriage or sex or relationships, here's the thing. There's a pattern. Neither of them, neither of them ever point to like what's happening locally where they are. Like, neither one of them, when they're asked questions about marriage or sex or relationships, neither one of them go, well, I don't know how they do it around here, but I know how they do, I know how they do it down the street, right? That's not how they do things, right? That's not how they talk about things. They don't talk about things from a local perspective. They never, they never look for truth in what's happening currently within their culture when it comes to sex or marriage or relationships, right? They don't look at it and go, well, like, here's what the latest song says, I mean, the latest song says this about sex. The latest song says this about relationships. The latest poem says this. The latest advertisement talks about this. The, the latest expert who's written a book says this. That's, they never point to that. They never point to what's happening culturally. Jesus and Paul, they, they, they never point to the, the current laws of the land or the statutes of the government. They don't ever say, well, you know, the, the, the court says this about sex. Here's what the court says. Here's what the lawmakers say. You know, they never say things, well, like, well, according to the leaders of this country, here's what marriage is, here's what sex is. They, they never point to that. They never ask or, or point to what everybody else is doing. They don't say, well, you know, here's what, here's what this says, but everybody else is doing it like this. That's not what they say. No, both Jesus and Paul, when they're asked questions about sex or marriage or relationships, they always point back to the first two chapters of the Bible, which I think is interesting, Genesis 1 and 2. Like we see Jesus in Matthew 19, the Pharisees, it says this, the Pharisees came up to him, they tested him, they asked him this question, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's a marriage question. And back in this day, all you had to do is, it was, it was a culture that was dominated by men, and all men had to do to divorce their wife was fill out a certificate that said, I didn't like the way you cooked dinner last night, we're done. Like, there was no cause, right? You could just kind of divorce whoever you wanted to divorce. And so they said, Jesus, like, what's it say? What does it say about divorce? What do you think about it? Is it, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And here's how Jesus answers. He says, have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And God said this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, it's like the thing you hear in every wedding, let man not separate. So there, there are actually biblical reasons for divorce. Infidelity, adultery, 
Those are reasons for, for divorce. And, and I want us to hear this today, right? When Jesus speaks against divorce, he's not speaking against divorced people, right? You may think, well, Jesus has some pretty strong opinions about divorce. Yes, he does. Why? Because he knows what it does to people. Like I said earlier, those that I've talked to who have gone through divorces, whether they've been super messy or, or, or fully justified, from a biblical perspective, they would say, man, it doesn't matter. It affects you down to the smallest part of your life. So Jesus doesn't hate divorced people. Jesus hates what divorce does to people. But Jesus, when he's asked this question about marriage, he quotes Genesis 2. Later, if you look in Ephesians 5, this is Paul. He writes this letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. And, and after Paul gives instructions to men and women when it comes to their roles and responsibilities in their marriage, we preached on this a couple weeks ago, in verse 31, here's what he does. He says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This, is a, this mystery is profound, he says. And I'm, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you, husbands, love your wife as yourself, and let the wife see that she respects, honors, and advocates for her husband. Again, Paul, when he starts talking about marriage and relationships, and intimate relationships, he goes back to Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis, and it happens time and time and time again throughout Scripture. That's just two examples. And here's the deal. The reason we see both Jesus and Paul point back to Genesis, this creation narrative, when God created humanity, is because in the first two chapters of the Bible, we discover three massive truths when it comes to marriage and sex and relationships. Truth number one is this. God created and designed human relationships, including marriage. Like, when you think about the word marriage in particular, like, that word is a word that we've applied to relationships. But really, all marriage talks about, and all marriage really means, that the verb is to bring two things together. You're marrying something. You're, you're connecting two things. So when you think about the way God designed the, the words that we've chosen to apply to the things that God designed, that's the best word we can come up with. But really, the whole concept of relationships and intimacy those were God's idea. The concept of taking two people and bringing them together, connecting them together, that was God's idea. And what we say is this, you and I, we were, de we, we were designed to desire relationships and connections with one another. It's, one of, our, it's one, of our, more, one of our high five values here. We say this, we're better together. We are hardwired as human beings for a community. Like our desire, there's a desire in all of us, introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter. There's a desire in all of us for real, meaningful relationships. And that's, how, that, that's a part of how you and I were created in God's image and likeness. We're hardwired for community, and so is God. I mean, God himself is in community with himself. There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All 100% God, all equally powerful. He's in community with himself, so God being in community with himself wired us to also be in community with one another. We're designed for relationships. Right? Truth number two is this, God created intimacy. And that's really what we're after, right? We're going to talk today more about intimacy and what that means. But, but here's, what, here's what it's all about, right? So it's not just being in relationship with one another, but, but, but intimacy. When we talk about intimacy in, in, in our relationships, especially in our marriage, this is what we're after. This is the goal. I know so many of us, if you grew up in like the 80s or 90s, you grew up in that kind of purity movement where you're kind of looked at, you, you were looked, you, you were forced in some ways to, to look at sex as bad 
And as relationships, like you only, you only, the only reason you're in relationship, the only reason you date is to get married, right? We didn't talk about, we just told you no, the church back in those days, and that was me too, just said no, don't, bad. We didn't share with anybody what they're supposed to chase after. Instead, we just told you what you're not supposed to do. But really what we're supposed to chase after and what we're supposed to protect and what we're supposed to guard and strive for is intimacy. And here's what that means. Intimacy is being fully known by one another and knowing one another fully. Intimacy says, I know you with all your flaws. You know me with all my flaws. And yet we are still safe. And that also reflects God's desire to know us and to be known by us. And I love this. God doesn't just want to know you and I fully. He wants to be known by you and I fully. So that's the first two truths. The third one is this. God created sex, sexuality, and sexual intimacy to be the overflow of an exclusive covenant relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, with one another at its deepest, which means it's, it's, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's not just physical, but, but sex and sexual intimacy and sexuality were designed to, to exist in this covenant relationship at, at the deepest level, the most meaningful level. So just kind of put it simply, if you want to take notes, you can just grab screenshots, right, take pictures of the screen. Here's what we would say. The reason that Jesus and Paul and other New Testament writers point back to Genesis when it comes to answering the questions about sex and marriage and relationships is because sex and marriage and relationships were all God's idea to begin with. And it all began in creation. God's desire for you to have something that is greater than what our culture says is normal began at the beginning of time. Like, it's not just something that where as things have gotten worse, God's like, ah, I just really wish you guys would do better. Well, he's had this desire for us since, since creation. And here's the truth. Since, since God thought all of these up, because they were a part of his design for humanity when he created us, which we were created to bear his image and likeness, here's what we know. God's thoughts and opinions on sex and sexuality and sexual intimacy are the one and only source of real truth. They are the one and only place for us to find real answers when it comes to our searches and our struggles and all of our questions regarding sex, sexuality, and sexual intimacy. Here's what it says in Genesis 2. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And, and that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then I love this, in the creation narrative, it's all kind of fact and narrative and, and, and just, just information until Adam sees Eve for the first time and Adam starts singing. He starts speaking in poetry. Adam says this, she, this, this, is, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. And then here's what God says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, which we talked about this before, right? I, I've shared in here whenever I do premarital counseling or marriage counseling with folks, especially before they get married, right? One of the things I say is once you get married, you now are family. Everybody else that used to be your family, they're now your relatives. Why? Because as a man and as a, as a, as a, as a woman, as husband and wife, you are to leave those families and cling to one another. That relationship, your marriage, is now the most important relationship in your life. 
And so the man leaves his father and mother and he holds fast to his wife. He provides and protects. She regulates the environment. And they, husband and wife, says, shall become one flesh. And I love this. This, this is the, the Greek word, hayat echad, or sorry, Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew phrase, hayat echad. And it means this, to exist as one, to become united, to be established together, or to appear as inseparable. Meaning you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. This is both the spiritual and emotional and physical parts of this covenant relationship in marriage. This is referring to the depth of the relationship. It's also referring to the act of sexual intimacy. And it says this, the man and his wife were both naked, which means this, they were both laid bare. They were fully exposed, full disclosure, nothing hidden from one another. And get this, not ashamed. When was the last time you felt like that when you got out of the shower and looked in the mirror? Like, I'm like, so much shame. Should not have had that extra piece of pie, right? Which this, I love this, this, this unashamed piece, it means this, not disappointed, not uncertain. There's no reason to delay or hold back intimacy for any reason. That's what it means to be unashamed. There's nothing in you that causes you to doubt or check up. And so if we kind of take this and, and paraphrase it, right? In, in God's original design of marriage, the husband, a man, and a wife, a woman, became united and existed in one, as one in such a way that there wasn't anything about either of them that remained hidden, kept secret, and the result was a relationally, spiritually, and sexually intimate union with zero insecurity that's full of certainty and trust in the other person which results in zero hesitation or delay or reasons to withhold sexual intimacy for one another. That sounds awesome. Like my, as I started to, to read this, like I'm looking at this going, why aren't we doing that? That just seems like a good idea. Like God's plan for this is so much better. I read this quote this week. It's a longer quote, so kind of bear with me. It says this. We see in creation that, that a marriage is a covenant, which means it's an agreement that is in all and every way spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical. It is a, a lifelong exclusive relationship between a man who reflects the masculine image of God and a woman who reflects the feminine likeness of God. And they're joined together by God into an intimate union and oneness of both flesh and spirit, haya echad, and the ethos, the characteristics and spirit of a God-designed sexual intimacy is for it to be a place where a husband, a man, and a wife, a woman, exist together, both naked, nothing hidden, and unashamed. Certain, satisfied, safe, and secure. Jim Bergen says it like this. He says, all sex and sexual activity are intended by God to exist within the context and container of a naked and unashamed marriage between a man and a woman that fosters an emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical connection that reflects and images God's desire for true intimacy, oneness, and unity. And I know a lot of people, you'll hear these arguments oftentimes that you know, well, God, the Bible doesn't say anything about this kind of, of sexuality, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexuality, whether it's promiscuity or monogamy. Like the Bible doesn't, like the Bible doesn't specifically say, a lot of times what, what happens is this. People look for permission through omission. Well, it didn't say this, and it didn't exactly refer to this, and it didn't actually talk about this. 
And here's the thing that I've come to kind of understand with this when it comes to sexual sin. And let me just say this. Sexual sin is sexual sin is sexual sin. It doesn't matter if it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, right? It's all dealt with the same. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, right? So it's not one of those things you can play the comparison game. Well, well at least my sin is like heterosexual sin, so I guess it's kind of normal. We've already talked about what normal really means, right? But here's, what, here's the thing. When, when, I, when I hear that argument, it's like, well, you know, it's, I find permission to live this way because the Bible doesn't specifically say not to do this. And I look at this and go, when you read the creation account, what's not clear? Like, what, like God doesn't have to go, well, let me explain, like, let me get into all the nuances. No, God's like, listen, what's not clear in this? How is this still muddy? I mean, God is perfectly clear with, with what he says is right and righteous and good and best and true when it comes to marriage and sex and sexuality and intimacy. So according to the Bible, what we see is God's desire for sex. This is a good, works like it's supposed to intimacy. It's a good, works like it's supposed to marriage. It's good, works like it's supposed to sex, sexuality, sexual intimacy, sexual activity. It's all the way it's supposed to be. Sex and sexual intimacy is a celebration. God designed it to be a celebration of freedom and faith and trust and security that comes from a deep and intimate connection between a husband and his wife. And you kind of imagine God in creation thinking up sex, and the angel's going, they're going to do what? Like, are they going to like this? The guy's going, they're going to love it. But that's what he created it for. Matt Chandler says this. He says, sex is a gift from God. It's meant to nurture intimacy in a marriage between a man and a woman and forge a bonding of their souls. Haya echad. Oneness, inseparability. And here's what we've been learning in the last few weeks. Here's how we apply this to our lives. According to Jesus, applying his truth to our lives leads to a life that is lived at its fullest, and that includes sex, sexuality, and sexual intimacy. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, which means this. Jesus came to give you the opportunity to rework, reconsider, and repent from an old way of life and step into a new way of life that images and reflects perfection in creation. That's what I came to do. And Jesus says, you've got two deals on the table. You can build your house or your life, which includes your sexuality and your sexual activity, on the rock of his truth and his ways, which means that it is storm-proof and fireproof, or you can try to do it your own way. And the danger in all of this, church, is when we take something that God created and designed and carved out a specific place for in our lives and in our relationships, the danger is when we do that and we put it where we want, with who we want, when we want, how we want it, and do it our own way. And this is the thing. God would say, Jesus would say, you're building your life on sand and it will fall apart and it will cave in and it will collapse on you and odds are it's probably gonna take some other people with it. And I told you I was a youth pastor for almost 20 years and in, in the, the, we would have the sex and relationship conversation usually a couple times a year, once a year. And, and every time I would use the same illustration. And like it got to the point where the students that had been in student ministry for a handful of years ago, you're going to talk about a fire in a fireplace again, aren't you? And I'm like, absolutely. And some of you may have heard this. Like fire isn't bad, right? We're getting into like it's fall season. It's kind of rainy and gray outside. It's starting to get cool, right? Whether you put a fire in the fireplace or a fire in a fire pit outside, you know, it, it's great. It brings everybody around. It's a lot of fun. You, you can roast s'mores. 
That's a weird image for what we're talking about. Don't worry about that. But there's a place for it. There's a place for fire. They literally call it a fireplace in your house or a fire pit. That's where it's supposed to be. Now you take the same fire. The fire hasn't changed. Fire is fire is fire. And you set that same fire in your living room, someplace where it's not supposed to be. Or you set that fire on your deck. It'll burn your house down. The fire hasn't changed. Where you put it has. And now all of a sudden it becomes dangerous. Hebrews 13 says this, let marriage, which is the oneness and union of husband and wife, be held in honor, which means the most precious or of great price. Among all, which means everyone. So the author of Hebrews would say this, when it comes to marriage, it's the oneness and union of a husband and a wife. There's no other definition. There's no other biblical definition for marriage than the oneness or union between a man and a woman, one man and one woman. And that needs to be held in honor. It means to be considered uh, to be precious or, or of great price. Among who? Everyone. And let the marriage bed, which is the place, an act of sex, be undefiled, which, get this, means free from that which by nature is deformed, debased, or impaired. Another way we can understand what it means to be undefiled or to defile something is this. It's anything other than what God says is true, right, good, and best. Anything other than that. Anything other than that is debased and deformed. It's a deformed version. It's a knockoff. It's cheap. It might look like the real thing. It's just slightly off. And the author of Hebrews goes on and says, For God will judge the sexually immoral, which is the word, it's a Greek word, porneo. It's the word that we use for pornography or pornographic. But here's what this Greek word porneo means in, in, in this culture. It means anything and everything outside of God's design. That's porneo. It's like, well, I don't struggle with a porn problem. Maybe there is another problem that you wrestle with that's outside of God's plan or design for sex, sexuality, and intimacy. That would be porneo. That means you do have a porn problem. So God will judge the sexually immoral, those who engage in sex outside of what God's plan is, and the adulteress, which means sexual activity outside the exclusive bond, covenant, and union with your spouse. And in our men's group here on Wednesday nights, we kind of wrapped up the book of Hebrews on Wednesday, and we, we talked a little bit about this. And one of the things I shared with them then that night was this, that, that in our culture, here's what our culture encourages us to do. It encourages us to look three ways when it comes to sex, sexuality, and intimacy. One is this, look in. Look inside yourself. What do you want? What do you want when it comes to sex and sexuality and intimacy? Whatever that is, it's fine and you should chase it. And then our culture says, look out. Look out and look for whomever, find whomever or whatever will satisfy the desires of your heart when it comes to sex, sexuality, and intimacy. And then the third place is this, look up and create for yourself a version of God that's okay with and supports number one and number two. That's what our culture teaches us. Look in, what do you want? All right, now go find it. Yeah, but God says, no, nah, don't worry about that. You just create a version of God that supports that. Whereas what Hebrews 13 tells us is the opposite, that we are to look up first and understand what God's plan and design for these things are. And then look into ourselves and fashion our hearts so that they are obedient and trust and believe in what God says is true. And then look out for others who are doing the same and do life with them.
So what I want to do for the last few minutes that we've got left, I want to press into where these home invaders that we've been talking about, these home invaders of pride or apathy, where they want to burn our lives down when it comes to sex, right? So apathy would say this. Apathy kind of detaches all things spiritual from all things physical. Apathy would say this. Sex is just a physical act that really doesn't matter that much. In the book of 1 Corinthians, see Paul, same guy that wrote these letters, right? He, he's actually battling kind of two thoughts of the day. One was called Gnosticism. The other one was called Epicureanism. Gnosticism said that all that is physical and all that is spiritual can never meet. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body physically. It won't affect your body spiritually. Epicureanism said this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. So basically just live it up. It was the original, I know we don't say this anymore, it was the original YOLO. All the kids are looking at me like, shut up, dude. I got it. Here's what Paul says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Again, that word porneia, anything outside of God's design. He says, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one with her, spiritual? It's not just a physical oneness. It's a spiritual oneness. It's an emotional oneness, right? Paul says this, for it's written, the two shall become one flesh. Quote Genesis 2 again. So Paul says this, flee, run from sexual immorality, porneia, anything outside of God's design. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The, the, the consequence of sin is dealt with the same through the, cross of, through the cross of Christ, but the way sexual sin affects us is significantly different than other sin. The real-time effects of sexual sin are different. We'll talk about that in just a second. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, I think we, we kind of buy into some of these teachings, right? What we assume is safe for the body isn't always safe for the soul. We have to understand this. We assume that. We assume, well, it's safe for my body. Who cares? It's not really affect my soul. But what is always, what, what may be considered safe for the body isn't always safe for the soul. Our bodies are where God chooses to live. Our bodies were designed to have sex by God. We are sexual creatures. That's how he intended us to be. Sex is the result of a deep spiritual connection in an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. In marriage, when the Bible talks about our spirit, it refers to the core of who we are. We think to ourselves this, look, I'll just do this now, and then I'll ask for forgiveness for it tomorrow. All of that, here, if, if that's your attitude, all that shows me is you have zero understanding of the true nature of sex or sin or grace. Here's the cold, hard truth, church. Grace does not make sin safe. Grace doesn't make sin safe. One author I read had this to say about viewing sex as merely physical. He said this, if sex was purely physical, then once any physical sexual encounter was over, then you'd be over it. It wouldn't have any more effect on you. I mean, think about this, right? Think about trying to, to have this conversation, trying to tell someone that's been a victim of rape or someone that's been a victim of sexual abuse. Try to tell them that sex is just physical. And then once the physical act is over, once the pain, once the wounds are healed, it shouldn't really bother you anymore. Why don't you just get over it? Try having that conversation. See, to treat sex as purely physical, undermines what God intended it to be, intimate and passionate and guilt-free. And you're not just risking your own capacity for intimacy when you engage in casual sex, right, in hookup culture. In casual sex, here's what happens. In hookup culture, when you engage in this, any way outside of God says this is what's good, right, true, and best, you're taking someone else with you into the fire. 
The same author I read goes on to say this, the battle for restored intimacy that victims of sexual abuse are forced to fight is the same battle that those who see no problem with casual sex are choosing to fight. Remember we said you gotta choose. Your way or God's. By trying to convince ourselves that sex is just a physical act, here's what we're doing. We're choosing to have to fight and deal with fractured intimacy for the rest of our lives. We're choosing to put our ability to trust someone else in harm's way. We're inviting things like shame or guilt into our lives, and ultimately we're putting our future relationships in jeopardy. We're choosing that. One pastor I read said this, the the biggest issues we face in the bedroom is not what happens in bed, but what we're bringing to bed with us. Regret, shame, past mistakes, pornographic images that we've seen, thoughts, thoughts of the person at work who you flirt with, and maybe they flirt back a little bit, right? Those, th- that's the kind of stuff that Jesus says, like going there and doing that in your mind is like going there and doing that in your heart. So, so even when you look at something or someone outside of a way of what God says is true when it comes to sex or sexuality, it's, 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 it's already as if you've committed adultery, We justify it by going, well, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't take any action. You justified, which is just as if I had. And Jesus says this. He says, it's better for you to cut off appendages than to keep giving into sin. You can do with that whatever you want, right? So that's apathy. Here's pride. Pride would say this. Pride would say, sex will fix my relationships. I can fix this. I can do this. When I've done marriage or premarital counseling with with couples, I hear this expectation a lot. For those that are married, it's this. Well, if we just had a better sex life, things would get better. Or if if we just had a more active or or frequent sex life, things in our marriage would be better. For those who are not married yet or engaged, right, they say things like this. Like like our life and our relationship, it's going to get better once we can have sex. I hear this a lot. It's like, you know, my, my porn addiction will go away once I'm able to actually have sex with someone. That's not true. And I said this in our Man Up series. I'm going to say it again. Ladies, especially young ladies in the room, if you're dating someone in a relationship with someone, and if his behavior and actions, which means this, the way he treats you without sex being in that relationship has led you to believe something like this, well, if I just go ahead and sleep with him, married or not, then maybe he'll magically grow up and act like the man that God desires and I need him to be. Can I just say this? If if that's what you're led to believe by his behavior and his actions and the way he treats you, you're in for a major disappointment because if he's a little boy stuck in a grown man's body before you get married or before you have sex together, it's not going to get any better and it's probably going to get worse after you do. And fellas, especially young men, if your expectation in your relationships is to get all the benefits, right, married or unmarried, without fully committing or fully fulfilling your primary and responsibility of providing and protecting her in a lifelong covenant marriage, then you're a child and you need to grow up. That's little boy behavior. One author said it like this, sexual intimacy is a symptom of a good marriage. It cannot create a good marriage or fix and repair a bad or broken one. If you try to use or expect that sex will fix all the problems in your marriage, you'll discover that it will actually make things worse. A couple of minutes, a minute, a few seconds, didn't change anything. It didn't help. Anger and resentment and shame and lack of trust and lack of intimacy just got worse. 
And again, because I know we've got some young folks in the room, this doesn't just apply to them, but anytime I would preach on sex, I would always share this proverb, Proverbs 4.23. It says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Here's the thing. When you're married, this is your role for one another. Husbands and wives, you are to guard each other's heart. Guard her heart and your heart. Guard his, guard his heart and yours. Guard your kids' hearts. If you're married and you have kids, this is your role. But here's the thing. If you're not married and maybe you're in a dating relationship, that means at this point until you're standing in front of your family and friends, putting a ring on your finger, saying, I do, you're somebody else's husband or you're somebody else's wife. And the person that you're in that relationship with, so are they. If it's just a dating relationship and things are casual, don't play married. Guard your heart. Guard yourself first. Make sure that that person, you're not willing to let that person take you to a place that God would say is outside of what he designed. And then your second responsibility is to guard them. Make sure that you don't take them someplace that God says is outside of what I designed. And here's the truth. Young people, old people, it makes no difference. If they do not guard your heart in that relationship, then get out of it. End it. If it is a casual dating relationship, end it. Break up with them. Because if you just give over sex, if you just give in finally, it's not going to change. It's just going to get worse. They're not going to guard your heart more once you have sex with them. They're just going to pay less and less attention to it. So let's wrap this up, right? My son's like, thank you, right? For many of us, it's not pride or apathy. It's shame, right? It's this kind of third home invader that, that works its way into our lives, and it whispers our, into our ears and convinces us things like this. I'm damaged goods, my sexual sin has broken me beyond repair. God doesn't want me. No one wants me. There is no hope. I know that there are some of us here today that we've taken sex out of the safe place where God intended it to be in marriage, and now we've got the burn scars to prove it, scars that no matter how hard we try to hide them, no matter how hard we try to forget about them, they remind us daily of shame. And maybe for some of us, it's the choices that we made, or maybe for some of us, it's the choices that someone else made, even though we said no. See, shame wants to convince us that our capacity for intimacy is damaged and that we cannot trust and that any hope of us being in a meaningful relationship is completely wrecked and ruined. We ask this question a lot. Is there a way back? Can I get back on this path? And the answer is yes. Ezekiel 18 21 and 22 says this, if a wicked person turns away from all of his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes, builds their life on this rock and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he's committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And this is not saying you can save yourself through actions. This is all rooted in your faith and belief and trust that God's ways are better, and your obedience to him through faith. Ephesians, again, says this, and this is where I find so much hope for myself, especially when it comes to sexual brokenness. 
you were dead in your trespasses and in sins, the way that you once walked. But, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Catch this, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Regardless of what your sexual past may be, hear this. You are still his workmanship. He created you. He thought you up. You were his idea. Your sexual past, your sexual present does not change that. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared for you beforehand and the way that we should walk. No one is too broken, too far gone, too messy, too lost. Homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, Jesus, the cross of Christ, deals with it all. He breaks the power of those things. He says that no longer has to have a hold on you. You can rethink and rework and, and repent. You can change the direction of your life. fear of death is gone. You don't have to deal with that anymore. Jesus takes care of that. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith, which means your confidence is no longer in your sexuality or your appearance or whatever. Your confidence isn't in that. Your confidence, what you believe in to best provide for you is Jesus. And with faith comes faithfulness, right? Faithfulness is how we live. Faith is what we believe in. Faithfulness is how we activate it. So as we believe in Jesus, we become more faithful to Jesus, which means we begin to live the way that he desires for us to live, which means this, you can be restored when it comes to your sex and sexuality. You can be restored when it comes to your families or your relationships. No one is too far gone. So we're gonna end with the same blank. From now on, as for me and my house, we will. You don't have to walk out of this place the same person that walked in. You don't. Shame will try to convince you that you have no choice. You do not have to walk out of this place the same person you were when you walked in. You do not have to wake up tomorrow and be the same person you were today. Jesus says this, from now on, you can change. That's what he makes possible for us. And that is real and that is true. That's what he's offering. So if you want to talk about what that means today, if you want to, to, to talk about what it means to, to accept Jesus into your life or, or, or just to have that grace and mercy pour over your life, I would love to meet you. I'll be down front. If you need prayer, I'll be down here. Or if you just want to spend some time at the foot of the cross, you can do that too. If you want to join our church, if you want to become a, a part of this family of people that's just trying to figure out how to live the with God life in the midst of all kinds of mess and craziness and chaos, I'd love to chat with you about that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. Jesus, we love you. And today, I know that there are heavy hearts in this place. There are there's lots of thoughts racing in our head. There's these home invaders of pride or apathy, of shame. They're, they're trying to convince us that, that everything that we've just talked about isn't true and doesn't apply to us. It's for everybody else, but it's not for you. You're too messy. You're too broken. Your sexuality, your sexual past and present, they're, they're way too crazy. It's not for you. 
Jesus, I pray in this moment that we would hear your voice in our ear going, it is for you. That you are for us. You want us to have this life and have it to the full. You want us to live our lives on these rocks, on these mountaintops where you live with us and we live with you. So Jesus, I pray today that we would experience the full and real power of your restoration, that we would feel the full and real power of the opportunity of repentance to do things different. I pray for guarded hearts. Lord, I pray for tough decisions. Maybe some of us need to end relationships. Would you meet us in those places where we feel weak and insecure and alone and remind us that we're not? Restore us, Jesus, because you know we know you can. Pray all this in your name. Amen.